must-haves, at least for the passage we come to today. So let me ask you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians once again. <clears throat> While you're turning one other announcement, I forgot, and that is, Lord willing, next Lord's Day Sunday, next Lord's Day Sunday, um, I'll try and figure that one out. Um, next Lord's Day morning is what I was trying to say. Um, we're going to have one of our seminary students, Bobby Rowe, uh, to be bringing the word here in the morning. Lord willing, I'll be back in the evening, but Jan and I have a, a happy family uh, obligation in the morning. Our little Julia, our Julia, is uh, being dedicated next Lord's Day morning down in Charlotte, so we want to join the family. Others are coming in as well for that, so we appreciate your prayers. But uh, we've been seeking last year ago fall, I was trying to get a couple of the students in, had a couple of dates set, and... Uh, other things came up, so we weren't able to, but uh, Bobby, Lord willing, will be here next Lord's Day morning. No, he'd appreciate your prayers. Students are always, homiletics is intimidating, and there's only two people there. Um, then you come to a church service, and well, intimidation goes on, so be praying for him if you would. First Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to break into the chapter, begin reading in verse 13. And we're going to read down to the 11th verse of chapter 5. So 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief." Ye are the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together, and edify one another, even as also ye do. Well, amen. We'll end our reading, trusting again the Lord to add His blessing to the public reading of His inspired Word. Let's do bow our heads and our hearts again together. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we pray that 
It would have been an expression of the heart and not merely a repetition of the tongue. As we have corporately lifted our hearts to you and said, Savior, we love thee. Long for thy return. We read words today, some of the most detailed words on some topics in all the scriptures about some parts of those future things. Lord, we pray that you will give us grace then to find them as the apostle gave them to the Thessalonians, that there will be great comfort and help for us as your blood-bought people. Lord, as a people distinct from those that are children of the night and not of the day. And so grant us, even through these words, to hear the challenge of them, to be alert and sober. And Lord, we pray then, help us in these moments. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, particularly 1 Thessalonians, is among the earliest of his writings. I don't know if we've mentioned this so far in our little survey of Thessalonians here in these late summer weeks, but only Galatians is earlier in Paul's writings. Scholars debate Galatians. It's a piece of what's the counsel in chapter 2 that he's talking about. We won't get into that today, but this is one of the earliest of Paul's letters. It is a letter that we find is mixed with, in a, a remarkable way, it's mixed with instruction, guidance, even correction, and yet it is just full of love. His heart and pastoral concern for the people is evident on every page. And of course, the powerful metaphors that we saw in chapter 3 just illustrate this so plainly. I mean, what could speak more of love than that of a nursing mother? The guidance of a loving father in the home. And so I say Paul is writing to the Thessalonians full and encouraged. And that in itself is remarkable. Because if you look through the pieces of Paul's history that we find in Acts, Paul's writing this from Corinth. He's just recently arrived. If you think of his time in Thessalonica, run out of town, Berea, escorted out of town before trouble started there, left in Athens alone, briefly visited there by Timothy, maybe Silas with them briefly, but Timothy primarily, and then he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. Paul then journeys to Corinth, and he says in his own writing to them that he arrived in Corinth in weakness and fear and much trembling. And if you look at Paul's own experience and the record of his thoughts It's a low point in his own personal experience. He's struggling. God gives him grace, we find there very powerfully. He's revived in spirit as his companions join him in Corinth. But Paul, I say, in that regard, as he writes to the Thessalonians, was perhaps in every way preaching to himself as well. That is a great demand for preachers preach to themselves along with the people. And so as we come, and we've already seen in chapters 1 to 3, Paul is recounting his ministry among the Thessalonians, and he's reviewing the remarkable impact the gospel has had in their midst. They were obviously converted. Paul had no questions when he spoke and said, Knowing, brethren, beloved of God, your election. And so, Their testimony is clear to Paul and their testimony is clear and widely known among others 
as well. So when we come to chapter 4, as we considered last time, Paul moves from those recollections and the pieces of instruction and need that were involved there. He kind of now gets down to the business of the epistle and gives instruction and admonition. And last week in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 4, we saw those great general admonitions to, to please God, to control ourselves, and to love one another. Well, now as we come to the two paragraphs really that we've read today, the final paragraph of chapter 4, the opening paragraph of chapter 5, we find that Paul gives the Thessalonians now important instruction and information regarding the future. <clears throat> now we've been taking a devotional overview of 1 Thessalonians, so it's not my purpose today to flesh out all of our prophetic questions. I'm tempted to quote a quote I gave one of my teachers my first year in grad school. Uh, I'll lose it, I won't try, but it said something about uh, we haven't succeeded in answering all your questions. Uh, the, the answers we've turned up have only served to raise a whole new set of questions. In many ways, we're just as confused as ever. But we believe we're confused about more important things. Um, there was another piece of that I forgot to. But anyway, I, I don't want to try and flesh out all the questions on our prophetic charts. Normally those questions start to settle down on the, the question of the millennial kingdom. Uh, what is it? When is it? And all of those things. He doesn't really touch on that part, and that's where our curiosities are the highest. He touches more on some very basic parts of the future. There is a part of this that the Thessalonians were well aware of. Chapter 5, verse 1 opens up with a section. He says, there's something that you know very well. The times and seasons, brethren. You have no need that I write unto you. And there's one certainty with regard to the times and seasons. We can say, as Paul, in some ways we could paraphrase here, says, we know that we don't know. We don't know the times and the seasons. We do know that it comes as a thief in the night, as we'll see. The first paragraph, the last part of chapter 4, though, is a piece of it that the Thessalonians did have some questions about. Paul wants to be sure that they understand, and so he says in verse 13, chapter 4, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. It seems that the question that the Thessalonians had and presented to Paul, perhaps through Timothy, was a question about obviously those that have departed. What about the brothers and sisters that have died? I thought about that, just the mortality in the ancient world. It hasn't been very long since the church in Thessalonica was founded. And there have already been funerals. But there's a question that these Thessalonians have, and perhaps their question could be something of this nature. They were expecting the coming of the Lord. There's a, a word here, it's occurred actually earlier in Thessalonians. The coming, parousia, it, it has the idea of presence. And it came in the ancient world, particularly in Christian usage, to be the presence of the king. Uh, the coming of the Lord, it became a, almost a technical term. Well, if the Thessalonians are anticipating Christ's presence, His coming to establish His kingdom, 
Well, what about those people that have died? They're not going to be here when He comes. That's their question. And Paul's answer to that question in one of the big pieces of prophetic information that we get in this passage is the relationship to those that die in Christ and those that are still alive when He comes. And the whole point is is that we're going to be together. They're not going to be left out. The dead in Christ are going to be resurrected first. Then we that are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Don't worry about those that have died. They're coming with Him. And that's the point that he's making here in Thessalonians. The coming with his saints, we should add, is the same coming as his coming for his saints. As we said in chapter 5, we have that obvious point with regard to timing. We know that we don't know except this. He uses two metaphors to speak of the Lord's return. One is that of a thief... Some commentators transition that and use the particular branch of thievery, I guess, a burglar. Um, One of the things about the thief is he wants to come when he's least expected. The thief in the night. And then the other metaphor that he uses is that of labor, of a woman in travail. Both of these pictures that he uses with regard to the time of the Lord's coming have to do with suddenness. The thief, the labor, it comes suddenly. In the first illustration, the emphasis is on the fact that it's, it's unexpected. The second illustration of labor, it's unavoidable. The phrase he uses in chapter 5, they shall not escape. These are the doctrines, if you will, that these two paragraphs bring to us. The coming of the Lord. The blessing that it is to the saints. The judgment that it is to the ungodly. And that really is a theme that is constant through the Scriptures. When even the terminology, the day of the Lord, is introduced in the Old Testament prophets, it has that dual aspect. Blessing and cursing. The establishment of His kingdom and the casting out of His kingdom of all things that offend. So as we come to these, and I think it's significant, we'll come back to this as we close, that both these paragraphs, again, the paragraph in chapter 4 where He wants to clarify, give them a little more information to ease their concerns. The paragraph in chapter 5 that He's confident they knew very well. They both end with a charge with regard to comfort. To be comforted by these truths. Well, like I said, it's not my purpose today for us to fill out charts. What I'd rather do, and again, it is with pastoral concern that Paul writes even these prophetic details, is to look at these two paragraphs pastorally. And I want to look at them from two perspectives. That of what is true in the future... For the unbeliever, and what is true in the future for the believer. In each case, there are four things that I want to draw your attention to. So first, when we consider what's true, what is unfolded here 
in regard to the future for the unbeliever. If you look in chapter 4, we find here, verse 13, the opening of this opening verse of this paragraph. He speaks to the believers. He wants to comfort them. He wants to speak to them in their sorrow that they sorrow not even as others which have no hope. The first thing that's true of the unbeliever with regard to the future is that it's hopeless. Again, remember the New Testament terminology, the scriptural picture of hope. There's no uncertainty about it. It is certain. It is sure. It is purchased by a sovereign, unfailing God. It's just we haven't entered into our experience of it yet fully. So our hope is a joyful expectation, not a questionable maybe. But when it comes to the unbeliever, they are hopeless. Here the context is that of bereavement. Thessalonian believers that have loved ones, friends, fellow believers that have already died. They're parted from them. Again, there seems to be no questioning in their minds with regard to the doctrine, the truth of the resurrection. Paul certainly would, as he did to the Corinthians, challenge that deficiency. He's just giving them a little more detail. Don't worry about these whom right now you sorrow over. You're bereaved. There's hope. There's another day as we see. But for the ungodly, there isn't. It's hope less. Several commentators quoted a particular ancient document that was found a little bit over a century ago written with regard to bereavement among unbelievers. And some of the parallels with regard to what Paul says in Thessalonians and what are found in that ancient letter are striking. Because all the things that Paul's encouraging the Thessalonians, that they still have that hope. The ungodly do not have. For them, there is no anticipation of reunion. Those they care about when they die, it's over. It's gone. And whatever pieces, if we can speak this way, of even common grace, of love, of companionship, of family interaction, whatever pieces of common grace they've enjoyed are ended. There's no hope of seeing them again. And when we think of the ungodly with regard to this aspect of hopelessness, it brings up the whole idea of community. Again, the ungodly, they lack community ultimately. We've brought up a big topic. I don't want to get bogged down too long here, but we speak of, as we look in Scripture, as we look in history, we look in our experience, we speak of what theologians have come to term common grace. A rough definition of that is every good, every good thing that the ungodly receive from the hand of God short of salvation. They can enjoy a bright sunny day. They can enjoy a happy home. A 
lot of pieces of life they can enjoy, but yet falling short of salvation, those graces are incomplete now, and they're over at death. We are creatures that are created for community. We were created in the image of God, given capacity to enjoy Him, given capacity to enjoy one another. And what is the moral law of God? But that summarized, we read in Galatians today, in the one word of love. To love God. To love our neighbor. To be loved of God. And be loved of our neighbor. And how sin impacts that in this life. And how ultimately in a lost eternity. In the full experience of the death that sin is. All hope of community is gone. Christ speaks of outer darkness, of wailing, gnashing of teeth. They may joke in the bars, yeah, I'll go to hell, but at least I'll be among friends. Companionship will be absent. Love will be absent. The future for the ungodly, I say, is one first of hopelessness. The unbeliever is hopeless. Secondly, the unbeliever is deceived. If you look in chapter 5 and verse 3, we read, For when they shall say peace and safety... Then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Now, as I said, we're not going to try and flesh out all the particulars and our other questions that obviously are supplemented by other prophetic portions of Scripture. But they say here, or he, Paul says here, they shall say peace and safety. Peace and safety... And crying out, claiming that has been a common error among the ungodly throughout history. If you go to the Old Testament prophets, when they were speaking of the false prophets, what did the false prophets bring to the people? Peace, peace. When there is no peace. God's judgment is chastening of the nation. The captivities were before them. The prophets were warning them. And the false prophets were saying, it's okay. Don't listen. These are the radical guys over here. Don't listen to them. Peace, peace. There is no peace. Well, here Paul speaks in the New Testament of a future day. He's writing to a Gentile church dealing with the Gentile ungodly that surround them and says, When they shall say, Peace and safety, they're deceived. Paul says elsewhere with regard to the ungodly and our condition prior to our conversion, deceiving and being deceived. 
Well, what a sad picture of the realities of this life. Deceiving and being deceived. Everywhere. Everywhere. There's a particular deception that Paul referenced in the second epistle to the Thessalonians of a delusion that will come upon the ungodly in the latter days. And it's a delusion that is striking because it's not merely the delusion of self-deception and the listening to false prophets. It says there God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. And you think of the deception. You think of the wonders. There's a dual perspective. The ungodly, can we say, are deceived from two vantage points. The man of sin we read in Thessalonians, we see also in Christ's Olivet Discourse. He will be able to send forth strong signs, lying wonders. I've said often it's a sober reality that there may come a day for the Lord's people in which we will have to discern between things that are genuinely supernatural, but yet not of God. And here, I think Paul alludes to that day when under the delusion of the man of sin, the lying wonders will be added a chastening judgment of God that He will send them delusion that they would believe the lie. I said often there's a text in the Olivet Discourse that to me is one of the most sobering and yet most comforting verses in all the Bible at the same time. The deception will be so great if it were possible the very elect would be deceived. So when we think of the future, it's just an amplification of the present with regard to the ungodly. They're hopeless. They're deceived. And thirdly, we could put before you, they're careless. In chapter 5, Paul, as he begins to enter into a distinction between those that are children of the night and children of the day, he gives two pictures. Those that are asleep and those that are drunk. It's interesting, Paul uses a different word here when he's talking about the ungodly for being asleep than he uses for the godly in chapter 4 about those that have died in Christ. Now the words are very similar, they can be interchangeable, but one pointed out, I thought very happily so, that this word for sleep is often used in contexts of a blameworthy moral indifference. So here, these that are children of the night, I say they're careless. They're asleep. They should hear the call of the Lord, Awake, thou that sleepest, arise from the dead. Christ shall give thee light. But no, they they sleep. And then he enters into that further picture of drunkenness. What a common Historical sin. 
People who are laboring under the effects of the curse. Unwilling to recognize that. Unwilling to repent of their participation in the curse. And then trying somehow at the end of the day to lose touch with reality and get a buzz. Our day comes in all kinds of forms. The ungodly who should be concerned about the future, who should be burdened about eternity, instead are careless. They're asleep. They're drunk. Fourthly, when we see what is true of the ungodly in regard to the future, they're condemned. Condemned. Verse 3 of chapter 5, they shall not escape. And verse 9, God hath not appointed us to wrath. The obvious implication here is what Paul so plainly states in 2 Thessalonians 1. The day that comes upon them, the same day that comes upon the godly and the ungodly, we should have perhaps used that bullet point in our little survey of the pieces of doctrine that are found in these paragraphs. It's the same day that comes upon the ungodly and the godly here, not two different days. But the day that comes upon them is a day of wrath. Wrath and destruction belong to the ungodly with regard to the future. They're condemned. What a horrible reality. When you look at the lives of the ungodly that surround us today, the misery that is already part of their existence. We've come to a point in time where hiding under the benefits of common grace, home, family, farm, whatever, laws that apply equally in relatively crime-free nations, and those pieces of common grace are completely gone. Fear and frustration, anger permeate the world. And what they await is a final outpouring of condemnation and wrath, of which these earlier, can we say, opposites of common grace, these pieces of really the harbingers of wrath the evidences of their condemnation from which they should flee. Cry out to Christ for forgiveness. And yet they refuse. When you look at these paragraphs with regard to the future, for the unbeliever, he's hopeless, he's deceived, he's careless, he's condemned. But what do these paragraphs say then of the believer? Really, those things we've highlighted with regard to the unbeliever are pretty much by implication 
in contrast to what Paul's saying in these paragraphs to comfort the godly. Now in 2 Thessalonians, he's going to get into those deep waters not by implication, but by direct statement. I mean, speaking of Christ's coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What here is implicit, there is most explicit. But I say, think with me secondly today with regard to the future and how it impacts the believer. Four very similar points in contrast of him. Firstly, for the believer, he's hopeful, not hopeless. Again, verse 13, the very opening statement of these two paragraphs with regard to future comforts. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. You have a hope. And it's not merely a hope of resurrection and the eternal state, if you will. You're you're worried about Christ's return, His his coming, His presence. And and they're not here. They're going to be here. He's bringing them with Him. The doctrine that Paul underscores here more explicitly than anywhere else in the Bible is that of the translation of living saints. The common word is rapture. Did you notice in our hymns, I think the word rapture came up twice today, but it wasn't talking about the rapture. It was talking about a feeling of joy. But here, the believer is hopeful with regard to To his bereavement. He may sorrow for the loss of the loved one or the friend. But his sorrow is temporary. Because these that have gone on before, they're absent from us. They're absent from their bodies. But they're present with the Lord now. And he's going to bring them with him. Well, the ungodly has a hopelessness and a terrible foreboding of eternity and loneliness. Eternity in judgment. We are hopeful. We are expectant of an eternal community. We will then love God with an unsinning heart as McShane so aptly put it, and we love to sing. We will then love our neighbor with an unsinning heart. And our neighbors will love us with unsinning hearts. The community of that day, of that eternal day. What a blessed thing. When you think of our closest relationships here, And yet the way sin can enter in and mar that. That's why we use that phrase gospel thinking. Well, here's an application of it. What is the gospel? But the story of the saving work of Christ. A means of forgiveness. A means of reconciliation. Repentance and faith. The work of Christ. We'll apply that in relationships. Now, where sin still enters and mars. Forgiveness 
Reconciliation. For the believer, we can enjoy that now. But we're hopeful. We're expectant of a perfect enjoyment of that and a perfect redeemed community. And for Paul, as he speaks to these Thessalonians, he holds forth that hope. We may have sorrows, but they're temporary. And hope even now is going to overpower them. Because we look for a day in which we'll not only be with the Lord, with them again. Secondly, when we look at the believer with regard to the future, the believer is, we might just use the word, preserved. Again, verse 9 of chapter 5, God hath not appointed us unto wrath. You think of the ungodly and their deception and ultimately experiencing that condemnation. But God has given us truth. And the the heart of that gospel truth is that we have been delivered from the wrath that we were under. Verse 9 is perhaps a favorite of the pre-tribulationists. They're trying to work out their theology and Well, they use the word wrath here in this verse as a a description of the 70th week of Daniel. And we can't be here because you guys mostly know the story. I think they grossly underestimate the the scope of verse 9. This is not absence from the earth during a time of trouble. This is delivered from eternal wrath. What's it contrasted with? To obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. What do we expect? Preserved from wrath. Christ suffered under wrath that we would never endure it. Here, is a joyful expectation of the godly. But thirdly, for the believer, we find here while the ungodly in regard to the future is careless, the believer is watchful. Again, the imagery of sleep and drunkenness. Well, what is the contrast? Alertness and sobriety. That is what belongs to believers as we look toward the future. I often try and underscore for people. Sometimes it's in points of debate about some of the little marks on the chart. But what does the Scripture put before us as believers? Not a twisted doctrine of eminence as the left behind people, but yet a very simple, plain doctrine of watchfulness. We don't know the day and the hour, but He could come for us. He could come in our lifetime. We should be expecting Him. Thinking until, could we say, compelled to do otherwise. That we'll be among those that are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. 
But the watchfulness is not merely with regard to when's it going to be. The watchfulness is with regard to who and what we are to be ourselves as we await His coming. I always used to smile at some of the preaching and then even in some of the more serious writings by the left behind people. Well, you know, you wouldn't want to be doing X, Y, or Z when the Lord returned. I would just scratch my head. Can't he see even from heaven? Isn't he omniscient? The motivation ought to kind of be there even without. Because they're saying, that's why we believe this doctrine. Because it motivates you. You mean you can't be motivated? Sorry. I digress and I drift a little bit into sarcasm. But watchfulness. Sobriety. That belongs to us. What a contrast Paul has already seen between these Thessalonians and those that surround them in their city. They are different. They used to walk in darkness. Now they don't. They're watchful. I was trying to work this out a little more, but the homiletics of this message were really getting a little difficult. But if you look at these four points we're making with regard to the ungodly and the godly, there's there's a point at which there's some passivity and activity. In a sense, the ungodly are passive in that deception. Now, it's because of their willful disobedience. But they're active in their carelessness. Well, here it is for us as believers. We're passive, in a sense, in that preservation. What God has done for us in justification and in, in the fullness of the gospel. But we're active in this watchfulness, in this leading a sober life in anticipation of the return of our heavenly bridegroom. So the believer is hopeful, he's preserved, he's watchful. And the last term with regard to the believer, he's received. I tossed and turned a little bit thinking of the fourth word here in this contrast. We said of the ungodly, they're condemned. Well, we could have said justified. That would have been great. Would preach well. We could have said accepted. Maybe that's even closer. But received. That idea of community that's been underneath all of these things really. We who were in our natural state children of wrath, even as others, yet now accepted in the Beloved, there accepted would have been good. But yet all of this terminology here of the Lord's coming, that technical word, parousia, has a basic meaning of presence. And what did our Lord say in John 14? I go away. I will come again and receive you unto Myself. Where I am. Think of those words. The ascended, exalted Son of Man. Where I am. Where I 
have purchased a right to be. There you may be also. So shall we ever be with the Lord. While the ungodly are condemned, the believer is received. Is it any wonder in these two paragraphs, one where Paul wants to give them a little more detail with regard to their question of those that have gone before, the other with regard to things they knew well, the events of the second advent. Both paragraphs end with comfort. It's added to it in chapter 5, verse 13, or 11 rather, edification. But the word of comfort in chapter 4 also has something in it. Comfort one another with these words. Our comforts aren't the imaginations of some religious dreamer. They're the words of God. They're the promises of the one who cannot lie. And so when we look at bereavement, when we look at our pilgrim journey, when we look at the last days where for the ungodly it is all darkness, For us, it is all day. And the result is, not merely then, but now, comfort one another with these words. Let us, yes, as we have our questions and anticipations with regard to the prophetic Scriptures, Let us nonetheless see the plain gospel truths that are evident. And let us be comforted that we will forever be with the Lord and with His people. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we do come with grateful hearts and pray that we have not sung hypocritically today, Savior, we love Thee. And so grant us, even in these words that to many of us are quite familiar words, but Lord, let us see gospel comforts in them. Be sobered by them. And even be encouraged as the Thessalonians to share that word of how to escape the city of destruction and be put on the path to the celestial city. Lord, bless these meditations to our hearts, we ask. In Jesus' worthy name, amen.